Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. This is the first episode of season two, which is kicking off in the wake of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, the second impeachment of U.S. President Donald Trump, not to mention the ongoing pandemic and lockdown and everything else that is going on with that. But I'm delighted to kick off this season with a super timely conversation with my friend, colleague, and someone I admire immensely, Dr. Jeffrey Howard. Jeff is an associate professor of political theory at UCL, University College London, and the Department of Political Science, where I work also. He works on topics of political and legal philosophy, which might sound a little abstract, but what's so interesting about Jeff's work is how he really focuses on the moral challenges that face citizens and policymakers every day. He's written on democracy, free speech, criminal punishment, prison breaks, hunger strikes, terrorism, and so many other topics. And in addition to being an absolutely excellent scholar and teacher, Jeff has appeared frequently on the BBC, on different media outlets, and he's advised numerous policymakers, government officials, and government bodies. He's also just one of the most interesting, engaging people I know, and I'm just thrilled to have him on the podcast. Over the past year or two, Jeff has been working on a really interesting project on what he calls dangerous speech. He has an award-winning article out on that topic right now. He's currently undertaking a book project on the theme and really asking questions like, is there a right to incite? Is there a moral duty to refrain from dangerous speech? Is there a right to restrict or punish insightful speech? And is there a moral obligation to enforce or to not enforce that? So given our political climate at the moment where, again, Trump was impeached on the charge of incitement, where he has been banned from the top media, uh, social media platforms like Twitter uh, to stem exactly that dangerous speech, I couldn't think of a better person to ask on the show right now than Jeffrey Howard. I really enjoyed this episode and I hope you will too. We nerd out a little bit at the beginning on legal and moral theory, but then bring it back to current events in the second half. But the whole thing is a lot of fun. So here is my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Howard. All right, Jeffrey Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. It's great to be here. (laughs) It's great to have you. Um, So Jeff, you've been working for a while on so many interesting topics. Today, we'll get into a lot of your work on free speech, on dangerous speech. And before we start talking about that, though, I just wanted to know, how did you first get interested in this topic? How did you decide to start exploring it? Well, I found myself puzzled by what seemed to be a deep disagreement uh, between the American approach on freedom of speech and the approach taken by so many of the other liberal democracies in the world. So in most of the world's liberal democracies, it's a crime to encourage or glorify the commission of terrorist acts. It's a crime to engage in various kinds of hate speech. And yet this kind of expression has been held to be fully protected by the First Amendment to the US Constitution. The Supreme Court has said again and again that the government cannot punish speakers simply because it believes that the viewpoint they're expressing is dangerous, except in very limited emergency cases. And I was puzzled by how confident the Americans 
uh, mostly American law professors working on this issue, were that the American view is clearly the right view and the society that you're living in just isn't a fully free society unless you're able to advocate crime, unless you're able to advocate terrorism, unless you're free to advocate hatred, contrasting that with the confidence on the other side of the Atlantic of scholars here in the UK who were just as um, sure of themselves that free speech doesn't protect this kind of um, dangerous or otherwise troubling expression. And so it was that contrast that led me to start digging a bit more deeply into the legal and philosophical literatures and try to figure out what in the world was going on here. That's so interesting because the same thing happened to me when I first moved to Canada and then to the UK. Like it, I did not know how different free speech and hate speech laws were. And like you, I was shocked at how, um, how, how fiercely people defended their own country's kind of view on this and saw it as so, um, so crucial to just how they, they viewed what, what was meant by, by speech and everything. So I think it's fascinating you're looking into that. Can you just say just a little bit more about what U.S. Uh, free speech laws actually, so like the Brandenburg test and what, what our criteria actually are compared to the U.K. or Canada and places like that? Absolutely. Um, before I do, I just make the point that um, uh, your experience in Canada is is resonates exactly with how I felt moving to the UK. And what puzzled me most of all was that people with strong views on this topic seemed to think it was a relatively easy and straightforward question. Oh, what yes. the right um, attitude toward this issue is. And the more I look into it, the more I realize that there really are plausible arguments on both sides. It really is a difficult question. And anyone who thinks it's really cut and dry, um, as so many of the people working on this topic do, specifically, I must say, the people who defend the more expansive view of free speech, um, the more I've come to uh, think that actually there's a lot more here to, to sink our teeth into than, than meets the eye. Um, so on this issue of on this issue of um, the American approach here, so there's a particular case, lots of Supreme Court cases we could talk about, but the particular case that I've been interested in is this 1969 case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, and it concerned a guy named Clarence Brandenburg, who was the head of a local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan, and he posted, he basically ran a small rally, uh, and the local television station showed up. And he went on talking about how Jewish people and black people are a danger to the American dream, and they and their political supporters have really ruined the United States, states, and we need to take revengeance, he said, against them. Uh, I love that he used the word revengeance. Um, and uh, so this went on TV, and the police came and they arrested him because this violated a law in Ohio that prohibited the encouragement of violence, the encouragement of, of criminal acts. And he said, absolutely not. This may have violated the Ohio law, but the law itself violates the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and in particular, its protection of free speech. Um, and it goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agrees with Clarence Brandenburg that his free speech rights were indeed violated. And so it settled on what stands to this day as the court's test for when the state is legally allowed to restrict dangerous speech. Uh, and the test in a nutshell is that the speech um, has to be likely to cause uh, Ill illegal acts. So it has to be likely to cause crime. It has to be likely to cause crime imminently. So it's gonna happen right away. And the speaker 
uh, the speech is directed to causing the crime, which you might interpret different ways, but one of the main interpretations is that the speaker is intending to inspire his or her audience to engage in the lawless behavior in question. So what that means is that if you're, you know, standing before an angry mob and you point to some target and you say, go kill him, that can be stopped. But if you're publishing something in the paper or uploading something to your social media feed with the same content, well, then it's probably not going to inspire violence imminently, although there might be some exceptions we could talk about. And so it's more likely to be uh, protected. And so that's the basic American view. And, and in contrast, most of the other liberal democracies don't have those kinds of uh, constraints in place. It's much um, democratic legislatures across the world have much more latitude to enact laws that restrict speech. Right. And this, like, like that intention part and that imminent, that, that sense that the event is going to be imminent is what I've always understood to be a little bit different in the U.S. context. And I guess an extension of that is the U.S. doesn't really have hate speech legis legislation to the same degree that the UK and most other um, liberal democracies do. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, absolutely. So the Supreme Court um, has held in multiple cases that you can't stop people from simply expressing hateful views toward other groups. Um, so another famous case, for example, uh, concerned a group of neo-Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, um, this case hit the Supreme Court in 1977, uh, National Socialist Party of America versus Village of Skokie. And in this case, a group of neo-Nazis uh, wanted to march in a neighborhood that contained a huge percentage of Holocaust survivors. Um, and they wanted to march with signs saying Hitler should have finished the job and other deeply hateful and offensive content. And the Supreme Court ruled that their First Amendment right freedom of speech and freedom of assembly did indeed protect their right to do that. Um, and that's a clear example of conduct that would be illegal in most of the world's liberal democracies where there are laws against incitement to racial or religious hatred. Now, there are lots of arguments you might make um, on either side of this, but it is so striking that not only do we not have hate speech laws in the United States? But the Supreme Court has basically said to Congress and the individual state legislatures that they're not even allowed to consider enacting hate speech laws. So it's one thing to say that hate speech laws are misguided, all things considered, and they're probably a bad idea because maybe they're counterproductive and we, perhaps we can talk about that. But it's another thing entirely to say, no, it's so obvious and clear that hate speech laws violate freedom of speech that we're not even going to allow democratic legislators uh, to consider enacting them. And that's something that's really striking about the, the contrast between America and the other democracies. Absolutely. So I want to see, I want to get more to now what you are saying about these questions and these topics. So you've been writing a lot on this idea of dangerous speech. What do you mean when you use that term in particular? And why is it important? What, what are you wanting to say about it right now? So I principally have in mind speech that risks inspiring violence. So this might include terrorist propaganda that advocates or justifies or promotes 
uh, the commission of violent terrorist acts. It could certainly include other kinds of criminal advocacy uh, that don't necessarily encourage terrorism per se, but encourage other forms of violent criminal wrongdoing. I think speech that incites racial or religious hatred, though, also counts as a kind of dangerous speech insofar as it encourages people to believe that members of a particular group are subhuman or lack the same basic moral standing or equal rights as everybody else, therefore justifying violent or otherwise problematic or discriminatory treatment toward those groups. I also think various kinds of dangerous disinformation um, mm -hmm. can count as dangerous speech. Um, arguments that claims that members of particular groups have committed crimes when they in fact haven't committed crimes are crucial in the ideologies that justify violence against members of those groups. Um, the recent events regarding the Rohingya certainly bring that lesson to mind. So I think dangerous speech is a large category, um, but the general idea that defines it is speech that risks inspiring violence in some way. Uh, okay. and, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and so you've, you've said on this that there is perhaps a moral duty to refrain from speech that is dangerous, that I guess endangers others by like advocating for a violation of their moral rights. Um, but you also say the real debate is about whether this duty ought to be enforced, all things considered. So I was wondering if you could break that down a little bit. First, just the sense of there being a moral duty to refrain from speech that endangers others. What do you mean by that? And how is that moral duty maybe different from the legal right that's there? Absolutely. So when I talk about um, the moral duty to refrain from dangerous speech, I hope I'm not saying anything particularly controversial. So take a really simple case where a powerful speaker has some impressionable audience member um, uh, in front of him and encourages him to encourages the audience member to go kill somebody else. Um, now, in a lot of jurisdictions, this would just be straightforward criminal solicitation. You're not allowed to be party to a conspiracy to commit um, some criminal act. Um, and it seems to me that if you add the number of people present um, and you have the speaker include various political or religious or moral exhortations or justifications for why he thinks this murder is a good idea, um, and perhaps you put it on the internet, this doesn't change the basic moral mechanics of what's going on, which is that we have a responsibility to pay attention to the likely effects of our speech on others. And if there is a sufficient likelihood that impressionable members of our audience are gonna be moved by our speech to harm others, we can't just say, well, that's on them. They're responsible for what they do. Just because I told someone to engage in terrorism doesn't mean I'm on the hook when they actually do it. They're responsible. And my reply to that is, well, actually you're both responsible. So each of us is responsible for not engaging in violence against other groups, but that's compatible with the thought that we're also under a moral duty not to encourage others to engage in violence against other groups, or we're under a moral duty not to um, give them arguments that might reasonably lead them to believe that they ought to engage in violence against other groups, even if we're not explicitly encouraging them to do so. Um, and so I think that this is a, a basic moral responsibility that we all have. Um, the, follow, the challenge that I then get from people is, well, sure, it does seem seriously objectionable to 
uh, encourage violence. It does seem seriously objectionable to incite racial or religious hatred. But even though it's wrong, you have a right to do it. You have a basic moral claim to be able to express yourself to others. They have a right to be exposed to what you're saying so that they can evaluate it for themselves. And that's why free speech properly understood uh, protects your claim to say this stuff, even though it's dangerous. And, And that's the real point where I, I disagree. And I, and I think that um, when we think through some of the different arguments about what justify free speech, we should come to the conclusion that while free speech is very, very important, it does not protect all speech. And it in particular doesn't protect speech that seriously endangers others. Great. And I want to get to the second point too, but I just want to push a little bit more on this because the example that you gave is certainly like right, a clear violation of moral rights if you're you know, calling to murder someone or very clear racist or otherwise, you know, incendiary language that's really going to to incite harm. But what about when that violation of moral rights is more murky or muddy? Like how, how can you, how can we tell if there is a violation of someone else's moral rights? Like what happens when it gets into more of that gray zone? So I think there are a couple ways in which we might enter a gray zone. So one way we might enter a gray zone is if we're asking, is the conduct being advocated actually wrongful? So some people think um, encouraging people to get an abortion uh, would count as encouraging them to commit a murder. Um, Other people would disagree with that. And so here we have a disagreement about whether the speech in question counts as advocating murder, or people disagree about whether physician-assisted suicide is murder. Now, if I know someone who, is a doctor contemplating helping someone end their life, and I encourage them uh, to do it and help the person, depending where you think about that central question about the ethics of assisted suicide, you might interpret what I'm saying as encouraging them to commit a murder, um, or you might think that I'm encouraging them to do something that's utterly morally permissible. So I agree that there will be hard cases, and, and generally in cases when there is reasonable disagreement about whether the conduct being advocated really is wrongful. Um, my inclination certainly is to say that those aren't the kinds of cases we're talking about. Um, and so I'm happy to say that when there is unclarity on that point, um, there's a good argument for saying that you're not actually engaging in anything that's certainly clearly wrongful and so shouldn't fall within the law's grasp. But another way, fall within the law's reach, but another way the, murky night, the murkiness might enter the picture is if it's not clear what the speaker is intending. So it might be that the speaker is making a point um, that members of a particular community say have... Um, engaged in lots of problematic behavior in recent years, and they're a real problem in our community, and we should do something about them, right? But doesn't go as far as to say, you know, you should drive these people out of our community, you should discriminate against them in your businesses, you should kill them if you can. Um, And so there's a question about what is the moral status of that kind of speech? Mm -hmm. And my inclination is to be somewhat hawkish on this and say, well, even if you're not intending for your audience to engage in actual violence, there is a duty to be aware of the likely effects of your language on your audience. And if your language is going to have a foreseeable effect of inspiring your audience to engage in violence against other groups, 
then you have a duty to find another way to make whatever point that you think you're making um, in a way that doesn't inspire them in that way. So I tend to think that as a moral matter, the legal question is slightly more complicated, but as a moral matter, the duty to refrain from dangerous speech doesn't need to be violated intentionally. It could also be violated recklessly where people aren't mm -hmm. intending to inspire violence, but it's the predictable result of their words. So maybe I'll give you an example. It, it's possible um, that some people uh, in the 1994, in the run-up to the 1994 Rwandan genocide, um, who were making radio addresses arguing that Tutsis had no place in modern Rwanda, it's possible that some of those speakers were on the more moderate end of the hateful spectrum and actually just wanted to drive the Tutsis out of Rwanda but didn't actually want to kill any of them. I don't think that makes any difference when we're appraising whether it was right or wrong to be making those arguments on Rwandan radio. I think it was still clearly wrong insofar as it contributed to a toxic atmosphere that was permissive of and encouraging toward violence toward toward Tutsi citizens. Sure. Um, we, I, I want to ask you about some other actual examples in just a minute too, mm -hmm. but I just want to get to the second part of what you're saying here, where even if we do recognize that there's this moral duty to refrain from dangerous speech, you say that the, the big debate is mm -hmm. about this question of enforcement, whether this duty ought to be enforced. And I found this part just so interesting. And so I was wondering if you could just say more about um, about your point here and, and how you kind of got, got to that. Absolutely. So my claim is that we have this duty to refrain from dangerous speech. People push back at me and say, oh, but surely people should be allowed to violate that duty because we have this basic moral right of free speech to express ourselves, even if what we're saying risks causing harm, and to access speech, even if that speech is dangerous. I then say, no, we don't. <laughs> Our right to free speech is limited by these duties we have not to endanger others. And then we come to this question, should that duty not to engage in dangerous speech be enforced through law? Um, or should it not be enforced through law? And what I try to say here is that we should think of the enforcing this duty just like we think about the enforcement of any other duty. And I draw on some work in the philosophy of, of defense and the philosophy of war that argues that when we're thinking about using force against people or imposing harm on people, which enforcing a duty always involves because it involves the state threatening punishment um, if they engage in certain activity or even stopping them uh, directly with force from engaging in that activity as when a dangerous speaker is silenced by being arrested by police, we're always using force. And whenever we use force, we have to ask, is it necessary to use force? Um, and is it proportionate to use force? And based on our answer to those questions, and I can explain what I mean by those criteria, um, based on our answers about whether the use of force is necessary or proportionate, we'll then reach a, a full, all things considered, judgment about whether we should actually be enacting laws um, that restrict this kind of expression. So at this stage in the analysis, I'm not yet gung-ho for the European-style approach to banning all this dangerous speech. We, we're not at that conclusion yet. So the proportionality argument, and really a lot of the stuff that people have said in the over the years when they're talking about the right to free speech, I think actually comes up at this stage of the debate. And this has to do with the collateral uh, side effects of enacting laws against dangerous speech. So a lot of people question, can we trust the government to regulate this kind of speech, 
even if we trust the Obama administration to regulate dangerous speech, do we trust the Trump administration to do it? And really that's a concern about, even if we trust the current government, might that then become a weapon that can be used by more nefarious governments in the future? And then there are other arguments that people might make about the danger of driving, perhaps if we ban hate speech, hateful speakers will just go underground where it's harder to figure out who they are uh, and they might become even more dangerous. Um, or it might be that even if we're only banning truly illegitimate, dangerous speech, it nevertheless has a chilling effect. So a lot of people have been worried in Britain in recent years that the raft of counterterrorism legislation that silences speech that might be seen as glorifying terrorism um, would run afoul of UK laws and that will stifle legitimate debate say among Muslim theologians about, well, what really are the limits of violence? And you might, you might want there to be that kind of debate so that, for example, liberal, moderate Muslim leaders can make those theological arguments about the, the wrongfulness of terrorism. But in order to do that, they have to be able to talk about it and let people express their views about it. And so all the, these raft of considerations might mean, you know what, <laughs> at the end of the day, banning this stuff isn't the way forward. Um, and so we, maybe we can talk about some of that stuff, but I'll maybe just quickly explain the necessity idea. The necessity yeah. idea is just, is it necessary to ban this speech? So there's a really old tradition in the United States in particular of saying, yeah, lots of speech is really bad, but the best way to deal with it isn't to shut people up. It's to talk to them. It's to argue back with them. It's to engage with them. Even if what they're saying is really dangerous and awful, um, the way forward is to uh, deliberate with them so that maybe you can change their minds, but at the very least, you can persuade the susceptibles in the middle who aren't sure what to think that your view is right and their view is wrong. And if you shut down the discussion by making it a crime for people to say certain things, then you're not gonna be able to do that. And I think this proportionality and necessity side of things really is where the action is. Um, but an important thing to notice about that is that it's largely empirical, and so it's very hard to give a kind of blanket philosophical a priori answer to what the right answers are here, because it really depends about, well, is it really true that banning hate speech drives speakers underground, uh, and likewise for all these other considerations? But I think that's where largely our attention should be. Yeah, no, I just love how I love I love how you kind of applied some of these real like international law tenets and just war theory to this idea of free speech with proportionality and necessity and looking not just at potential costs for the speaker, but also for like the listener, or the public good and kind of the collateral consequences on that level, which uh, which was just which was just fascinating. So I guess I would just ask you then what what would be a scenario where, say, like you've said, I think that that in, in instances where just counter speech can work to push back at dangerous speech, that that's preferable over coercion. But when what would be an example of when that's not enough, when coercion would be necessary? And what, in your opinion, could or would that look like in a way that's narrowly proportional to make sense and be productive? Yeah, great. So. The necessity requirement tells us that if we have two options for fixing a problem, preventing some harm, stopping some threat, we should choose, if we have two options and both options have an equal probability of success, we should choose the one that imposes less harm. So if someone's attacking me and I can shoot them in the leg or I can shoot them in the head, I should shoot them in the leg, right? 
And he, which isn't to say that I wouldn't be allowed to shoot them in the head if it were the only way to stop them from killing me un unjustly. It's just that if I'm able to shoot them in the leg with equal effectiveness in disarming them uh, and stopping the attack, I should do that. And so a crucial, and that's the kind of natural habitat of this necessity requirement. If you're gonna use force against an aggressor or someone that's imposing some harm, you should use the least force that's necessary. Um, and you might think, whoa, goodness, if we can stop some danger that someone poses by talking, <laughs> by just having more conversations with them, boy, surely we should do that rather than firing up the cumbersome, difficult, burdensome apparatus of criminal law and criminal punishment. Let's just use, let's just talk instead. And so at first glance, this seems like a no brainer. Of course we should use counter speech against this stuff. But that idea that I mentioned a second ago, which is that the necessity condition is about adjudicating between options that have comparable likelihood of success applies here because we then have to ask, well, how effective is the counter speech really gonna be? In, in, in particular, in a world where people are cloistered away on echo chambers, um, where a lot of this dangerous speech is on the internet, I'm not particularly optimistic of the prospects of counter speech for effectively changing hearts and minds. And it may involve just an, a prodigious amount of work um, uh, to say, argue against all the hate speech on the internet effectively. And in the end, it may not be nearly as effective as simply taking it down. So the answer to your question is that I think when we're looking into the world of social media regulation and dangerous speech online, that's really the place where I'm much more uh, pessimistic about the idea that simply leaving it to counter speech to sort out will be a sufficient solution. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. Let's go ahead and move into maybe how some of this relates to things that have been going on lately, because I was reading your paper over uh, the week that um, the Capitol riot happened, that uh, Trump was impeached for incitement. And so kind of bringing some of what you've been working on to some of these present day political dynamics, in your perspective, was Trump engaging in what you've identified as dangerous speech and do you think some kind of enforcement or coercion was necessary or justified in this situation? Great. Um, hot topic for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, definitely on the first question, was he engaged in dangerous speech? Um, speech that risks inspiring violence without any moral justification for doing so. I think his speech clearly counted as that. And it was actually a very interesting example um, of the way in which disinformation figures within dangerous speech. Because the, the linchpin of, of Trump's um, arguments has been this claim that the Biden election was fraudulent, was wholly illegitimate, and was the result of criminal meddling by Democrats in the electoral processes across the country. And of course, we know that this is utterly false. And we can't just look at that piece of dangerous speech in isolation. We need to look at, look at it in the context of a country where it is widely believed that violent resistance against an illegitimate government is 
something that isn't just justified, but that is actually required, that a free mm -hmm. citizenry rightly stands up to an oppressive, authoritarian, illegitimate regime. And indeed, the, the philosophical texts like those of John Locke that the Founding Fathers would have read um, uh, defend this very principle. And I think it's, it's part of the kind of DNA philosophically of the country that violent resistance against illegitimate government is justified. And so what do you think is going to happen if you convince huge swaths of the country that the election has been illegitimate, coupled with speech that is implicitly incendiary, like um, it's gonna be wild on January 6th, um, and indeed some of Trump's um, associates, like his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, talking about how we need trial by combat, also seem to have been echoing this kind of incendiary rhetoric. So I think clearly taken together, Trump's speech does count as, as seriously dangerous. Now, coercion, uh, it's not clear he was violent. It's not clear that you could convince a jury beyond reasonable doubt that he was violating any criminal statutes currently mm -hmm. on the books, which would be the, the test. I mean, yes, if you were living in some kind of state of nature where there weren't any laws and you just could stop people by doing by appealing to what the moral law is, yes, maybe you could stop him from speaking, but we, we live in a society governed by the rule of law, so you're, you're only allowed to use coercion here and now if there's a, if there's a law on the books. It is a federal crime to incite a riot, and so maybe you could convince a jury uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump uh, really did was intending to incite a riot, um, although that's that's less clear. Um, it is a crime to uh, encourage people to commit a specific criminal offense. That would be much more difficult, I think, to prove. It's not clear he was actively encouraging any specific criminal offense. Mm -hmm. um, but because he's the president, uh, you know, the prevailing wisdom for better or worse is that you can't uh, prosecute a sitting president, at least for the commission of a federal crime. And that leaves the only mechanism of accountability to impeach him. <laughs> and that's of course what's going on before our very eyes. Uh, and, and you might even think at, of what the House of Representatives did um, uh, this week as it, in, at, you might even think as what the House of Representatives has recently done as it enforcing Trump's duty not to engage in dangerous speech by holding him accountable for his violation of that duty, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is slightly depressing, but I thought, I, I, from my point of view, wholly appropriate. Yeah, and and the thing, the points that you've said a couple of times was interesting to me in the article of impeachment that it wasn't just referring to the events of January 6th or just to the Trump speech that day, but rather to the accumulation of Trump speech in a much broader sense over the past two months and indeed over the past year, that, as you said, more fed that narrative of election fraud and that that is maybe not necessarily more of where the wish issue is, but but equally as much as the actual statements on January 6th. And I thought it was important that the article was written in that way for a lot of the reasons that you've said. Um, I think that's such, a, that's such a great point. And it also shows how dangerous speech really is cumulative in nature. And I think we tend to think of speech crimes that exist are things like you know, I'll pay you. uncontroversial speech crimes include things like 
Julie, I'll pay you a million dollars if you go kill this nemesis of mine. Uh, or even if I'm just privately encouraging you to, to do it. These are pretty uncontroversial criminal offenses. They only become controversial when it, they're done publicly and uh, there are moral and political arguments infused into them that raise these kinds of First Amendment concerns. That's why in the United States, if you put up a YouTube video arguing that in general that terrorism is a good idea, that's fully protected, but if you privately say, hey, go kill that individual that's not protected. I think that doesn't make sense, but I appreciate um, why other people do defend that, that line. But we tend to think of speech crimes as these kind of one-off uh, crimes. But actually, dangerous speech seldom works like that. It's about an accumulated body of arguments, not just by the president, but also by, in this case, not just by the president, but by his associates. Mm -hmm. So his associates have been com entirely complicit in this by peddling, forwarding the exact same lies about election interference and fraud. And just, just imagine the alternate universe in which President Trump says this election was legitimate, I lost fair and square, all his surrogates and defenders um, said it's legitimate, we lost fair and square, uh, let's move on. Imagine just Trump came out of the blue and said, you should come to the Capitol on January 6th and revolt. How many people would have shown up then? It was only in the context of this narrative about the fraudulence of the election um, that this incitement was actually dangerous. Um, I mean, and this goes to a point about the fact that incitement isn't always dangerous. So in my paper, I, I suggest at one point, you know, imagine that I were to, you know, at my Thanksgiving dinner with my family, I would encourage them that they, I would encourage them to chop off the left hand of the first left-handed person they meet because I hate left-handed people. This wouldn't actually endanger anybody. That people would be kind of bemused and weirded out by why I was encouraging <laughs> them to do this. But it's not like it wouldn't carry any actual risk of danger any more than pricking someone with voodoo dolls or encouraging someone to poke a voodoo doll would uh, increase risks of danger. So whether incitement will be dangerous definitely depends on, on context in short. Yeah, and I, and I think the point that you said a few minutes ago also that many who uh, would participate in the events of something like January 6th, you know, in the US context especially, would see a, a very strong moral duty to uh, to challenge what what people believed was a fraudulent election or an authoritarian government. So the sense that um, many were, were mobilized with this sense of moral conviction on that day and probably propelled to do things they wouldn't normally do because of this, uh, this sense of like moral duty to that cause. And Absolutely, I completely agree with that. Um, imagine if we thought, you know, <laughs> Imagine if um, Barack Obama loses the election against Mitt Romney, but then Barack Obama starts saying that it was completely fraudulent, that the Republicans rigged it, and all the sources we trusted in the media were reaffirming that same narrative. All the other politicians we trusted were reaffirming that same narrative. Uh, might I have come to believe it? Might I have shown up myself at a rally talking about how the election has been unfairly uh, stolen by Obama. You know, I'd hope not, because I think people do have a duty to be critical about their sources of information. And, and I do think you can blame um, these Trump supporters from buying this hook, line, and sinker so th thoroughly uncritically. Um, but it, I think there's a difference between uh, people who have been 
spewed toxic disinformation nonstop for four years or, or more, um, and then go decide to break into the Capitol, uh, and people that didn't. I think these people are uh, a titch less blameworthy, uh, although they're still really, really blameworthy because there's some other um, force intervening in this uh, that, have, that did indeed incite them to do this. And, and some would say you a big part of this force, this narrative of the fraudulent election was enabled at least by the social media platforms and especially Twitter as Trump's platform of choice. And uh, Facebook, but then Twitter this past week, of course, decided to first temporarily, but then permanently ban Trump from the site. And I think you had a, have been commenting on this, and, and I saw one comment that you made that while this legal right to free speech only binds the state, that the values that underpin it apply to these platforms' policies as well. And you said these platforms are essentially like the new public square, while their right to maybe ban dangerous content forever banning people from public discourse is almost always wrong. So I was wondering if you could say more about that, your response to this Twitter ban, um, and and yeah, how, how you think that fits into some of the other things we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, it's clearly right that these social media companies uh, take action against dangerous speech on their platforms. I think that a company that said, oh, we're just merely a platform, people are allowed to do whatever they want on our, on our network, would be failing to take seriously the fact that it is what is enabling the propagation of this dangerous speech, but for its provision of this platform that it is making lots of money from, this dangerous speech wouldn't be able to circulate um, to a nearly as great of an audience. And so it's clearly playing a crucial causal role in the production of the actual threat by providing a platform to it. So I, I do think that social media networks have a moral responsibility to combat this speech on their platforms. Um, I think that that moral responsibility is in principle legally enforceable. You wouldn't be able to legally enforce it in the US in any kind of straightforward way. But mm -hmm. by that, I mean, you wouldn't be able to t demand that the social media companies take down terrorist propaganda or hate speech. Um, lest they otherwise face some punishment, because if you did that, it would clearly run afoul of existing Supreme Court precedent. You can't, um, just as you can't punish individual speakers for engaging in hate speech or general terrorist encouragement, you can't punish a platform for uh, platforming that speech. Um, there are other things the U.S. government might might be able to do that are that disrupt the power of these companies. Um, more indirectly, I'm thinking of more antitrust style um, uh, proposals to break up social, large social media networks. Um, sure. Uh, but in Europe, clearly, we have the capacity to go after, to, to require that social media networks um, take firmer action against this content. And we can directly require that we, they do that. Um, so the first point I want to make on this is absolutely it's right that social media crack down on this kind of dangerous speech uh, and indeed them doing so. If they weren't going to do it voluntarily, it would be wholly legitimate for the state to force them to do it. Um, and that creates a kind of downward pressure, if you will, um, to remove content, to suspend speakers who are flooding the site um, with noxious, toxic, dangerous speech. 
But there's another side to it, and this is the second point I want to make. Is there any kind of upward pressure to keep up people or to keep up content? Um, and I think that there is. I am struck by the fact that these networks really are like the new public square. They're where people to go to get their information. They're where people to go to engage with others, to get um, uh, to hear different people's viewpoints. They really are, I think, um, more like the infrastructure in which civic communication now takes place. And because of that, I think they have a public responsibility to facilitate an inclusive and open discourse. Um, and if it's going to be that kind of inclusive and open discourse, even people who've made terrible mistakes, right? People who've made terrible choices in their life shouldn't just be banished forever. Even Donald Trump, I think, maybe after a year's suspension, maybe two years, should be able to come back. Um, and that's a conviction that animates me when thinking about criminal justice. I, I think we should punish people in a way that's compatible with seeing them as capable of reform and redemption. I think that even though I wouldn't at this stage argue that we should you know, legally require platforms to let people back, I think if the platforms are asking themselves what's the right policy in this area morally, I think they should be quite skeptical about banning people. I think it's incompatible with their commitment to an inclusive and an open public discourse. Yeah, and I think some of the points that you made before kind of relate to this too, with concerns about maybe driving extreme voices even further underground, um, the potential for targeting legitimate speech, the question of who decides, like who within either the big tech companies or within the government decides who would be banned forever does kind of wade into some some tricky questions. And I know there's been some pushback to Twitter this week from, as you mentioned before, human rights activists in places like Myanmar and places like Ethiopia, where um, Facebook and Twitter did not step in to kind of ban some of the dangerous speech. And people are asking, well, why did you do it now for Trump, but not in some of these situations where we actually had like mass atrocities playing out be, because of it. So. Um, I, I think this is just going to be such a, an interesting area moving forward. Um, what what do you maybe see as going to be the next big moral or legal issue regarding free speech with either social media or other issues? I mean, I do agree that the companies seem to have been playing catch up. And there has been a kind of bizarre American exceptionalism uh, on display here where the companies are deeply attuned um, to dangerous speech in the United States, um, but seemingly unaware. Uh, and impotent to take action against dangerous speech occurring elsewhere. Although I think the companies um, since the Rohingya genocide have made enormous progress um, on, on, on those non-American issues. Um, moving forward, I think the interesting question is going to be uh, looking at the, the, the kinds of content standards that the social media companies settle on. We've been in a period of enormous flux over the past few years where it seemed like every month Twitter and Facebook were updating its standards about what kind of speech is acceptable on its platforms. Mm -hmm. And in moments of real controversy, Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg would often step out and explain particular decisions, which really reinforced the idea that it was a very small number of unaccountable people in a, in a tucked away in a, in, a, in a dark room making decisions about the future of free speech on the internet. Um, and that's not a great situation. And I, I'm not sure these individuals actually want um, to have that kind, of, that kind of power over public discourse. And so I, that's why we're seeing 
initiatives like the Facebook Oversight Board. Um, mm-hmm. We're seeing proposal, proposals from free speech associations like Article 19 to set up some kind of non-governmental uh, multinational body that could be the source of legitimate guidance on content standards. So it isn't government setting the rules, but nor is it people within each individual company. Um, but we're also seeing, in addition to all that, so all that stuff's happening in the realm of self-regulation. What's going to happen with respect to the choices these companies are making about what their own internal policies should be? Um, but parallel to this is all this new talk of legislation in this area. And some of it's already in the book. So Germany has the Nets DG law, which threatens to fine companies like many, many million euros if they don't take down manifestly unlawful speech like hate speech um, within 24 hours. And in the United Kingdom, uh, the telecommunications regulator Ofcom will likely soon be given powers to enforce what's being called a duty of care on mm-hmm. the social media companies, whereby they agree a set of processes to be put in place to reduce harmful content. And then if Ofcom judges that the companies haven't taken enough measures to reduce harmful content as they agreed to do, it will then levy huge fines on these companies and possibly even criminal charges against executives of the companies. Um, so Parliament, if it, unless it backtracks from it, the, the white paper it published on this, really isn't messing around here. And so I think it'll be so interesting to see this parallel development of the internal content standards coupled with whatever external legal regulations that are going to be going to be placed on them. And that's that's really the issue to watch in the news over the next year, I think. And this is slightly related because I think we've been you've talking just now on kind of top down responses or enforcement, either from the tech companies themselves or from government. But I think getting back to your concept of like counter speak, I was wondering how you see that um, relating to this idea of cancel culture where other individuals and users on the site are using the platforms to call out, withdraw support for for people because of comments they have made or stances they have taken. Um, Do you think that is a viable place for some uh, for some kind of pushback, or do you think that in itself has maybe gone too far and challenged these um, public spaces from being as open as they need to be? I think that there are certain aspects of cancel culture that are morally regrettable. Um, I think that in general, when you think someone has done wrong, the best thing to do is to confront them about it, tell them that you think they've done wrong and demand a kind of explanation or accounting about why they did what they did. And if they're not able to provide an explanation, then they certainly own an apology. Um, that is how we deal with wrongdoers in our interpersonal relations. People who've developed communicative approaches to criminal punishment even think of the process of criminal trial and conviction as that as a kind of institutionalization of the idea that when there is wrongdoing, you formally accuse a wrongdoer of having done something, they owe some kind of explanation, and if they're not able to defend what they've done, they are then condemned formally for having done that, and the hope is that the condemnation, um, it results in some kind of uh, repentance, apology, 
on their part that can then lead to a kind of reconciliation afterward. Um, and I'm a big fan of this model. I think it's the right way to think about how we deal with wrongdoing, both politically and in our interpersonal lives. And um, publicly shaming people um, where the person is subjected to a litany of pylon attacks, um, it doesn't seem to me is a productive way of pursuing this kind of reconciliatory agenda where the aim is to induce understanding, apology, and ultimately reconciliation. I think it has a counterproductive effect of putting wrongdoers on the defensive um, and making them much less receptive to engaging in an open spirit. Um, now, I think there probably are exceptions here. There are some wrongdoers whose wrongdoing is so unbelievably heinous, um, completely unforgivable, and not remotely excused by anything that it perhaps is appropriate for everyone to just pile on them on social media. But I generally think that a lot of us are going to make mistakes in our lives and we should go through life with a bit more grace and generosity of spirit, which doesn't mean we shouldn't call out wrongdoers, um, but it does mean that we should do so with an eye on the question, what is actually going to facilitate um, apology and reconciliation? And I, I worry that the, there are excesses of cancel culture that run contrary to that aim. Is there anything on which your thinking has changed over time, something that you believed in the past that you no longer think is true or vice versa? Sure. Um, I used to uh, have reasonably libertarian views on tax policy and on income redistribution uh, when I was a very, very young student. And then I read John Rawls' A Theory of Justice, and it completely altered my perspective on that issue. And I stopped seeing the economy as just an atomistic collection of individuals. I stopped seeing current property rights assignments as any way the natural outputs of a natural market. And I instead started seeing the economy as a kind of cooperative scheme for mutual advantage, whereby our property rights themselves are the result of an agreement we've made with each other, a social contract that can itself be judged to be fair or unfair. And that really revolutionized my, my thinking about that and pulled me away from the more right libertarian approach to that to that issue. Um, so that that certainly is one issue on which I've changed my mind uh, over the years. But I do worry on social media that we tend to cloister ourselves way in our way in our kind of like-minded echo chambers and pop our heads up above the parapet only to dunk on and criticize <laughs> people we disagree with. And so there actually is not very much. I don't see a whole lot of people changing each other's hearts and minds on social media these days. And certainly one of the interesting questions moving forward is how might we cultivate a better social media that does enable those kinds of transformations to take place? Yes, absolutely, if only. Um, Jeff, I feel like we could keep talking for quite a while, but um, I know I'm mindful of your time. And is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention? No, thank you so much, Julie. I've had such an interesting time talking about this stuff, and you're so kind and generous to invite me on to, to talk about my research. Well, likewise. Um, and you mentioned Rawls. Are there any other books that you'd recommend for listeners? Oh, I, I think that uh, even notwithstanding the skepticism I've raised about um, some of these extremely capacious arguments for free speech, uh, I think John Stuart Mill's uh, 1859 classic On Liberty is still 
um, the go-to read for anyone who wants to start thinking about freedom of expression issues. I have a really fond memory of sitting in the library of my university when I was a freshman uh, student in college and it was winter time and it was snowing outside and I'm sitting there uh, reading John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. And it was the, it was the day I, I really realized um, that I was a liberal, that I believed in the small L sense of believing that um, individual freedom should be our kind of bedrock value. And so it's a text that I return to again and again over the years. And if anyone hasn't read it, I certainly encourage them uh, to do so. Fantastic. Jeffrey Howard, thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. Thank you once again to Dr. Jeffrey Howard. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. This is one of two episodes kicking off season two, so be sure to listen to my other conversation this week on political violence with Nathan Stock of the Carter Center. It's another uh, really engaging and very timely chat with Nathan. If you like this podcast, please take just two seconds to subscribe and give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you as always for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.